That would be okay. It says it's light. It okay, good. Delet. Um, let's door. see. Hmm? Delet. Door. Yes, a door. Or move, hang, entrance. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I encounter my ways and you answer me. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Looking at Steve Hi, Steve. Okay. okay, so let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful way, gracious to me through your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Amen. Amen. Okay, so that's Dalit. And then we have, yes, 26 December, 23 December. 26 is Sunday. Today is 23. Um, why were they risking their lives for the chance of making contact with the Alcas? In 1955, five missionary couples in the jungles of Ecuador were planning for a chance to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the remote, fierce Aoka tribe. They had been conducting gift flights over Aoka territory, attempting to create awareness of their presence by dropping packages of clothing, food, and gadgets to the natives from a small plane. On December 23, 1955, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott flew over the Aoka territory and dropped a gift package of clothing, a flashlight, and other trinkets. This time, the missionaries received a packet back from the Aokas, who tied it to a long cord. The missionaries dropped from the plane. It was full of fish, peanuts, bananas, a parrot, and other meats. The gift from the Aokas greatly encouraged the missionaries and four of the five couples met the same day to plan the trip that would bring them face-to-face -face with the members of the Aoka tribe. The group began <coughs> excuse me, assigning the specific duties each member would be responsible for on the mission, providing shelter in the jungle, packing food and supplies, maintaining a communication link with the home base, transporting those who would go to and from the remote location, as well as other vital tasks, were all necessary for the success of the mission. It was decided that the men would set up a camp on the beach near the location of the Aoka's main settlement. They chose January 3, 1956 for the mission, as they knew they would need to arrive and depart before the onset of the rainy season, which would make takeoffs and landings impossible. As soon as the plans were finalized, the missionaries turned their attention to making Christmas in their camp in Arahuno as much like home as possible. A meal was prepared and Christmas tree was made from bamboo and decorated with tinsel to celebrate Jesus' birth. Missionary Pete Fleming was still undecided as to whether he would accompany the other men on this trip. He waited on God in prayer continuously for the wives. It was a time of reflection and preparation for the dangers that were sure to confront their husbands on this mission. They knew it was possible they could all become widows as a result of this expedition. They also knew that the God they served held first place in the lives of their husbands. This fact seemed to hit home now more than ever. December 23rd was a day of self-reflection for the men. Why were they risking their lives for the chance of making contact with the Alcas? Nate Saint summed up their sentiments. If God would grant us the vision, the word sacrifice would disappear from our lips and thoughts. 
we would hate the things that seem now so dear to us. Our lives would suddenly be too short. We would despise time-robbing distractions and charge the enemy with all our energies in the name of Christ. May God help us to judge ourselves by the eternities that separate the Aukas from a comprehension of Christmas and him who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we might through his poverty be made rich. During his years, Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do these words ring true to you, true to you? What is their application in your life? Philippians 2, 5 through 9, your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying on a criminal's death by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Because of this, God raised him to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, okay, we got a couple prayer requests here. Oh, that came from out of here, didn't it? There we go. Let's see here. Prayer requests. Jonathan and Shelley have asked prayers for their son, Jake, who has decided he is no longer a believer in the Christmas story. Obviously, he's older. He's a, when he says believe in the Christmas story, he's talking about in the, the gospel of Christ and the, the story of Christ. But because it's that time of year, he said, so he would like prayers for his son. And uh, I told him that if I can help in any way, if the boy wants to email me or, you know, call whatever, we'll work something out. I just feel bad to even read that. But uh, it's what happens, and I said this during classes in the past, is people go off to college and they end up ruined by talking to other people, by, you know, listening to professors, by getting entrenched in the world. And uh, it can happen with your job. It can happen in all sorts of ways that your eyes get redirected from Christ. And the next thing you know, you are being challenged in uh if you're not well trained in the Bible, that can happen more easily. But, uh, you know, you get some people that they walk away from the faith. And uh, I've got a friend that uh, he uh, did some of the most amazing work that I have ever seen in regards to patterns in the Bible. Absolutely amazing work. And uh, he, I think probably what happened, I don't know this for certain, but he uh, had a website that was just filled with detail. It just incredible, incredible patterns that he dug out of the Bible. And uh, he wrote a book that was based on the website. So you're kind of getting the same thing right off the website for free. And I think the book didn't sell well. And anyway, he just, he walked away from the faith. He put debunked on every page of his website. It's still up there to this day. You can go to it. And he has debunked on everything. And he just, yeah, it's very sad because, I mean, the work he did was absolutely incredible, and, you know, he comes to mind every time I think of him, because we used to email together, and, and uh, he just, I, that's the only thing I can think that would have caused that in his life, is that he just got disaffected because people didn't put him on the pedestal that he think he sh thought he should have been on huh. or something. I don't know, you know, but it's not about us, is it? No. It's not about us at all, and if we want it to be about us, then it is not going to be about the most important person that ever walked on this planet our Lord. So they should invite him to listen to this Sunday service. Oh, he, he wouldn't. I, well, it's, it's, 
Well, I understand, but he he wouldn't. He he will have nothing to do with it. I've emailed him about things, and uh, he will have nothing to do. With it. Now this boy here, yeah, maybe. That's what oh, okay. I, yeah, I thought he met my friend. No, no, no. no that that would do no good with him. Right. But anyway, that's but he's just a Christmas story. Absolutely. So maybe. Yep. Okay, we got Bruce and Jackie. They are in Missouri. They've had all kinds of problems over the past uh, couple weeks and months, and uh, they've had a couple ups this week. We've been praying for him to get employed again and that happened but he's also got continuing medical problems his wife has some medical problems and then uh, their daughter and granddaughter are doing better so there's some ups and downs in their lives but they are just worn out from the constant debilitation and then that's the same with mark and becky in colorado they have had nothing but sickness for four or five months now it's been continuous one thing and then another and another so uh, those are some prayer requests that i have today and uh so we can uh, we can definitely uh, pray for them and get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to uh, come here to pray for these people and uh, especially for the faith of others that uh, may be lacking that once existed and has just uh, kind of been robbed away because of the things of the world. And we certainly pray for the health of those we've mentioned and any others that are out there that are having trials and troubles in their life, whether it's health or whether it's you know, just problems with the world in general. We lift up whoever comes to you, Lord, just uh, hear our prayers for them. And uh, Lord, because we talked about missionaries in our reading today, it sure would be a good time to mention the missionaries that, uh, that uh, are a part of our lives, whether in this church or in churches that others may be listening to that attend in their churches. We lift up our missionaries who are doing such a wonderful job, some of them in remote parts of the world. and. Uh, they're away from home, they're away from the comforts of life, and yet they're doing these things to bring the message to those that have not heard it. Lord, we would just raise them up right now. Help them to have a good Christmas season, a holiday season, and entering into 2022 with happy times and uh, uh, just looking ahead to the year ahead with uh, anticipation of bringing that word and seeing fruit come, come from it. Yes, Lord, we certainly lift these people up. Give them the reassurance in their lives that they are doing the right thing and that they are known by you and uh, that you are present with them. Make it real to them, Lord. And we pray for this class. We pray that you will help us to uh, conduct it uh, properly. And if anything is said that is incorrect, that that would be brought up to us so that we would not have incorrect doctrine taught to people. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful word, this gift that you have given us. And it's such a treasure. Thank you for it. We praise you for it. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Speaking of missionaries, have you heard from Ray and Jessica? I haven't because I'm not on Facebook anymore. Really? I did get a email from them some time ago. I don't remember the last one, but I, I, I got something in, in maybe a month and a half ago or around there. But um, they, uh, they were yesterday taken care of by the church along with Joel and Missy. So just yesterday, something went to them. It probably won't get to them by Christmas, but at least they'll know that that's what it was for. So uh, good stuff. Anyway, let's see here. We are in the book of Ephesians and we're in chapter six and we are really, really close to the end of it. We'll probably be done with the last two verses and, and uh, almost no time at all today. But we'll try to stretch out the class a little bit. So let's see here. Um, we're in Ephesians 6.22, and you can start wherever you want. Let's go to 21. Final readings. Titius, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that 
you also may know how I am in what I am doing. 22. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Okay, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. So, same thought, different words. Okay, uh, we were going through talking about different words. We might as well get off on a rabbit trail right now just so we don't wear out our... our well, actually, you got three verses. So, anyway, we don't want to wear them out too quickly, but... We were talking about, Burke brought it up, so I might as well just bring it up too, is that the Acts commentary for today, one word, makes all the difference in the world as to what is being conveyed. And if it's mistranslated, matter of fact, I'm going to talk about that, it be uh, eight weeks out, but I was doing the graphics work for Deuteronomy 31 something today, 14 or something anyway. And um, uh, while I was doing it, I came across a verse that I thought, I wonder if I haven't translated this correctly. They're all very complicated verses in this, this seven verses for the sermon, very complicated. And I, uh, it took me 10 hours to get through those seven verses and it was a headache all the way through. It was very, very complicated. And I thought this one verse, I'm not really sure of. The rest of them, I know that what I've done is appropriate, but I thought I'm going to check with Sergio. And so uh, uh, he had some time. He had a 20 or 30 minutes, and he sat down, and he read it, and he said something, and then I said, okay, well, why is it this way? And he had gone to the wrong word, because in this verse, it's plural and singular, plural and singular. It's going back and forth, and it's, it's complicated, and uh, so I said, no, I want, I'm specifically worried about this word with the word next to it. How would you translate that? And so he came back, and he said, here's how I would translate the whole verse, and it was exactly the same as my translation, except with one exception. And I, he came back and he said, before I had a, a chance to uh, answer him, he had answered me, well, our verses are the same except one exception, and which doesn't match any of the translations out there. They are all wrong, all of them, okay? And he said, uh, there's one exception, it's this. And then he went back and he said, oh, you were right. And I said, oh, God. <laughs> so he, he, he read mine, and then he went back and reevaluated it, and he said, I got it right. So our translations uh, matched, but it wouldn't make sense reading them in a translation the way that they're read. But it makes all the difference in the world in what is being said. And that has to do the same thing with Acts 3.16. So before we get into this Ephesians, because we're speaking about the Bible, and they're both the Bible, we'll go to um, Acts 3.16. It's a great rabbit trail to start this um, class with, okay? And I'm not going to go through the whole evaluation. If you want to read it, just go and read it right on the Superior Word website right now. Just go click on today and it'll come up, 316, okay? But it says here, um, uh, Acts 3, verse, where is it? Okay, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. The first time, it says through twice. The first time it says through, and his name through faith in his name is incorrect. That is, the word through in Greek is dia. Think of diameter, through. And uh, the word is epi, upon, or you could say on. And it makes all the difference in the world in the translation. That one word completely changes what is being said. Okay, 
Um, this had nothing to do. I think we talked about this in the last class, didn't we? And it's this week that it is now up. Yes, uh, we talked about it last week, and then he read that today. So you reminded me of that. That's right. Um, it makes all the difference in the world because the man demonstrated no faith at all. Peter walked up to him and healed him without any of his faith involved in it at all. And it changes the entire dynamic of what is being said. So there's a rabbit trail. When you are evaluating the Word of God, you want to not get stuck with one translation, especially if it's, well, I, I won't say it, but uh, it, the more that I uh, check against that translation, the worse I realize it is. It's just not a good translation, despite what people say. And um, uh, so the best thing to do if you're doing a study, I'm not talking about just reading the Bible, because you're reading the Bible and you're, you're, you're getting the information even if it's got inaccurate translations in there, which this translation is notorious for, um, you're getting information if you're just reading the Bible. But if you are studying a passage, your own personal study, if you do that every day for 30 minutes, I recommend you have two or three or five Bibles open in front of you. Or you can go to online, the verses that you're reading, just go to a parallel Bible, biblehub.com, and it'll bring up 21 different translations of that single verse. And then all you need to do is just read them. Take you five minutes to read through all of them, and you will say, ah, this doesn't say the same thing as that. I wonder which is correct. And then you can do your study from there. But if you are captivated by a single translation of the Bible, you're going to find that you have errors in your thinking. I'm not talking about just reading the Bible. I'm talking about doing a study, okay? So uh, we want to make sure that if you are going to, uh, you don't, have to know the Hebrew and Greek, but you can refer to the Hebrew and Greek. It's not difficult. Anybody can do it, and eventually you start to get the nuances of the language, okay? So that's always an option, and Bible Hub has the Greek. It has the different texts because there are differences in source texts. There's all kinds of information you can get from it, but I recommend that if you are doing a study, not Bible reading, but a study, that you get several translations Vic, you know, Vic, when he's here on Sunday, he's got a parallel Bible with four translations in one. And he sits there and he will compare all four while I'm giving the sermon. And then he'll walk up and he'll say, why does this say this and this say this? It's amazing. He reads everything as we're going through. And then one time he came up and he said, why, why does this chapter end at that verse and this one end at this verse? And I said, because they screwed up and they didn't print the end of the, the, the version because it is in the version, but they misprinted that parallel Bible. So he, he found one that was, had an error in it. So I told him what you want to do is, uh, or what I do when I find an error actually in a Bible, like this one here, when I got this, there were several errors of misspellings and mistranslations and stuff that are not their regular um, error for the translation, but this printing of it, I will send it to them and I'll say, listen, you've got an error in this printing. I give them the, the, you know, the printer, the year it was published and all that. And that way they can get that corrected because somebody buys this and they're going to have an error in it that is not a part of their translation. It's good to have that. So I, I will do that from time to time. But um, let's see here. We're going to go now. 622. I'll read it again. Check your Bible. Check what you read. Be ready. Okay. Whom I have sent to you for this very purpose that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Whom? The word whom is speaking of Tychicus, of the previous verse. There in 21 it said, but that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. So whom is speaking of Tychicus, of the previous verse? 
The words, for this very purpose, relate to what Paul just said to them, that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. He sent Tychicus to Ephesus with his epistle, entrusting him to fill in all of the information about him, which was unstated in the letter. This then explains why the book of Ephesians lacks the usual personal greetings, general well wishes, and other such messages which are found in some of his other epistles. It's because he's got somebody there doing it. He doesn't need to write it down. Tychicus was obviously faithful in his ability to recount anything that Paul passed on to him. If there was a personal greeting, he would relay it. If there was a note of commendation, he would relay it. If someone needed correction, Tychicus was competent and faithful to ensure that that was passed on. For the most part, though, the duties of Tychicus were to relate how Paul and those with him were faring, and then Paul's words, and that he may comfort your hearts. They certainly would want to know how Paul was getting along while in prison. They would want to know about his care, any visitors, how he was treated, and so on. With this knowledge, their hearts would be comforted. It appears that Tychicus was eminently suited to this task, because a word-for-word -word parallel of this verse is found in Colossians 4, 8. The whole thought concerning him and his special duties is found in Colossians 4, 7 through 9. So I'll take you there, and it says, Paul, once again, being very consistent, Colossians 4, verse 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. Here it is. I am sending you him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. And then verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So there you go. Paul is consistently using Tychicus, and he's consistently using his wording as he writes to these people. So um, let's see here. 4, 7 through 9. Then this is a statement of complete confidence in Tychicus, which stands as a personal commission concerning him. Life application. It is always good to know that a person can be confidently trusted. Is this how others see us? Are we willing to conduct our lives with such high integrity that we can be relied upon with even the most sensitive or personal material? Let us endeavor to be such people all times. That's one of those things that can be uh, very hard to do. You know, you're entrusted with something and uh, somebody pokes at you and, oh, come on, it won't hurt. We're your friends. And, you know, you if you have something that is a confidence, you need to be confident about it. You need, or, you know, confidential about it. You need to not be spilling the beans. And so it can be tough. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. I got to say this. The word fortunate actually comes from a kind of a pagan source, but it's so please don't send me an email on it. It is a word that we use in our language, and it's not intended to be pagan, okay? But I'm fortunate in the sense that uh, I am married to a wife that never asks me things like that, ever. Because if she did, it would be very annoying, and I wouldn't be able to tell her, and it would cause this conflict between us. But I can say this because she's not here. But she will never come up and say, well, you know, what's going on with this person, or what's going on with that person, or she would never, ever do that. It saves me all kinds of... You know, because I just have a, a, a thought that if I was in church with, uh, you know, a wife that wanted to know everything, it would just make life really difficult. You know, I, I, it, because I'm telling you, when you uh, are given a confidence in an email, 
and you'll hear me cite emails all the time. Well, somebody emailed me about this, and I'll be talking out of the blue, and that's always something that somebody brings up doctrinally, and they're either right or they're wrong, and I'm not giving a name. It doesn't matter. It's related to the Bible. I have no problem saying that. But when somebody emails me with something personal, or they call me and want to meet or whatever, you just can't do that. You cannot do that. And it's not just because I'm Charlie and I happen to be a preacher at a church. It's because that is what's right. So that's what you need to do. Tychicus would go there and he would relay on to the people what Paul had told him. He wouldn't go saying any more than that. So you can tell he was a faithful brother, as Paul says. And that's an important place to be in your own life. So I'll read that again. It is always good to know that a person can be completely trusted. Is this how others see us? Are we willing to conduct our lives with such high integrity that we can be relied upon with even the most sensitive or personal material? Let us endeavor to be such people at all times. Here's something that, uh, and this is hardly anything, but it is something. It's something that I do. You know, I go through the dumpster every day at 7-Eleven and I'm pulling out, take out all the old food so I can feed the birds out back of the mall. I have hundreds of them to wait for me every day. They're, they're a little flock that come and I feed them off my dock and no kidding I drive 1.6 miles down to the mall and those birds fly over me and wait for me at the mall and so now they are waiting for more food and they're waiting for the good stuff this time because all I give them on the dock is bread but um, while I'm going through there pulling stuff out there will oftentimes be money in the dumpster if it's in the bag that came from the front of the store and somebody just threw something away and they threw money away that's mine. I'm sorry. But if it's in the bag that came from the store where, you know, they're at the counter and you can just tell this is where they break open the penny things, they break up and all that. You know, that's the bag. I always take it. I set it on the ground. And when I'm done getting my stuff for the birds, I carry it in and I say, here you go. And sometimes uh, at the drugstore, it happens a lot more. They will throw away like a $20 bill by accident. And that's happened several times where I'll find it. And so I'll walk over and I'll say, you know, here, and check your uh, account. Oh, yeah, we were short 20 bucks yesterday. So you just have to do that, you know. And in the end, it doesn't make any difference. It's just $20. It's not worth, you know, uh, it, it's not my money is the point. And I don't care if it's one penny or if it's a $20 bill. If it's in the bag that came from the store where the register is, it goes back to that store. So there you go with that. Just be people of integrity, and, and uh, if you find it in the uh, other can, the one out front, because you know that's the one out front with all the beer cans and all that kind of stuff in there, that's mine. I'm sorry. I, they, they do not get that. I'll tell you what happened with that. I found a bag in, it was in Davidson's dumpster. It wasn't in the 7-Eleven dumpster, but it was from 7-Eleven. So what 7-Eleven does is they just, they're lazy, and they throw it in any dumpster that's closest. If the lid is off, they just chuck it in there. So I pulled it out, and there's a bag this big full of coins. And I thought, well, I need to get going. I just tossed it in the car, and I took it home and sat down on the floor. And I showed it to Hidako. I said, look at what somebody threw away. She's like, what? And then the next day, I took it. I, well, I didn't take it back. I went there, and I went into Peggy, who's the manager. I said, Peggy, I found a whole bag full of coins. What do you know about that? I don't know anything about that. And I said, okay. She said, you better check with Billy. She was on yesterday, and she probably had something. I went to Billy. Billy was out back smoking a cigarette. And I said, Billy, what do you know about a bag full of coins? And she said, I don't know anything about it. And I said, okay, I've done my job. $80 worth of coins in there. Unbelievable. So that bought lunch for all of us this past week. Great bonus. But at least I checked, you know, because who knows? Why, why would somebody throw away a whole bag of coins? It's insane. 
anyway, there you go. Um, be people of trust or uh, be people that can trust you. Okay. Be a person that people... Trustworthy. trustworthy. Thank you. That's exactly what I was thinking of. I'm looking at this and trying to think at the same time. And my brain doesn't do two things at once. It just does not. Okay. So we've got that done. And I had something to share with you from that verse. Um, take a kiss to Ephesus. Um, no, I'm not going to worry about it, but um, I had a great thought for you all, which will stay mine only, I guess. Go ahead. We're in verse 623. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, boy. Right. Wonderful stuff. Okay, so we have um, <clears throat> Paul's final words are given in verses 23 and 24. He begins with peace to the brethren. The subject of peace seems heavy on his mind during his time in prison. He seems to have found an understanding of peace which filled his life in a way he didn't fully realize until he was bound with his chain. This is most especially expressed in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Another prison epistle, and in Philippians 4, he says, 6 and 7, uh, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So Paul's in prison, and he's able to write that to people, and he's saying that because we all get into our own little pickles, we all get into our own little binds, and he says that it doesn't matter that much after all. And he didn't tell them that I'm in worse circumstances than you, but he was in worse circumstances than most people will be. He was in a dirty Roman prison. If somebody didn't come to feed him, he would not be eating food because that's the way it worked there. In the winter, it was cold, and in the summer, it was hot, and it was always filthy and stinky. If you read the descriptions of Roman prisons, you, you would not want to be in one. It's not like being in prison today where you get to sit and watch cable TV and you know all kinds of stuff like that. But um, uh, there you go with that. It's one of those things that uh, Paul uh, found peace while he was in prison, and he was able to comfort other people with his words by that. And those words still are giving people comfort 2,000 years later. When somebody emails me and they're in distress, I will often end my email back to them with be anxious for nothing, okay? It's not going to do you any good. All it's going to do is it's going to rob you of your sleep. It's going to rob you of your joy, but it's going to do you no good at all. So be anxious for nothing. And you know what? We've got a hope in Christ. Unless you're just not sure and you, you, know, you made a profession for Christ, but you've just never really uh, solidified your faith after that point, I understand that people would then be anxious about things. But if you're really grounded in Jesus, if you're really grounded in Jesus, what does it matter? What, I mean, if you think about this life and how short it is and how absolutely miserable it is, then uh, it really doesn't matter. We're all going to be out of here soon enough, and when we are, we're going to have an eternity of hope, of peace, of contentment, of joy, all in the presence of the Lord. And that is 100% guaranteed. This isn't just a pipe dream. You know, I was out there, I, I round up weeds every two to three weeks, depending on, you know, the season, which I did it today. Um, but last year, when I was doing it, actually last season, which was the summer of this year, but last season, um, uh, you got to round up a lot. And I was out there rounding up. And of course, I'm not wearing my shoes because I don't wear shoes. But um, this 
guy from France, obviously. He's either Belgian or French because of the accent. But he says, you, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I said, I'm rounding up. He says, but the chemicals, the chemicals. And I said, send me home to Jesus. And he said, what? And I said, Jesus. And he goes, oh, and he looked horrified and walked away. So he has no peace in his life. I'm sorry, that guy has no peace. If the old saying, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. I mean, it's either know him and have peace or don't know him and you have no peace. So, um, uh, yeah, he looked appalled at that. But um, if you know Jesus and you really are grounded in him, these things just don't matter. I mean, you get frustrated, you get sad, you, you know, all the things that happen in this life, but they're not beyond your control. They're within the scope of God's providence, and you know that. It's what a comfort. And Paul understood that from his epistle. So Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing, and so on. The God of peace is going to carry you through. Charlie Garrett paraphrase, I know. Anyway, um, hello, ma'am, can we help you? At least one of them showed up. The other Garrett woman has not showed up today at all, so I don't know where she is. But uh, woman. yeah, well, someone used to call her as a kid. Well, she's one. And well, no, I'm, I'm, I didn't want to. I didn't want to embarrass whichever one just walked in, whether it's my wife or my mother. The other one is not here. If I had said now you have let it go. Who I didn't have, come in? I have. My mother is now shamed by you publicly. Terrible. Terrible. Like, like you've never done that. I would never. Who would, oh, who would think of it? Okay, so um, this is Paul. He wishes this peace to those in Ephesus and to any who would read his letter and apply its contents to their continued walk with Christ. He next says, and love with faith. Peace with God comes first through receiving the work of Christ. In that moment, in the very moment, a propitious relationship with God is restored, okay? And peace and harmony are realized. When that occurs, God can then pour out his love on us in a way which was not previously possible, okay? This has as much to do with God's relationship with you as it does of your relationship with God. When you call on Christ, you may get the gospel. I'm talking about how it affects your life the way I was talking about a moment ago right away. Or you may not be so grounded in the word and you know you're saved, but you don't get how it's really going to be okay in this life. At the same time, okay, whatever happens to you towards God, something toward, from God happens towards you, is that God can now look at you in a different way that he could not before. Because your sin was a wall between him and you. Where does it say that? Your sins have separated you, so your God cannot hear. Is that Isaiah? Yes, it is. So, um, uh, Isaiah 59, your sins have separated you from your God so that he cannot or will not hear, depending on the translation. But um, uh, something new happens when you are saved. It's not just that you realize that you're saved and you can start growing in your ability to be anxious for nothing and in your ability to be happy all the time, but God can now, sh he can shower a favor on you that he could not have before. This doesn't mean that, you know, uh, we're going to see in Sunday's sermon from the book of Luke, one of the verses that we're going to look at is, with God, all things will be possible. And that's true. There are some things that are not possible to God until something happens in your relationship with him. Okay, that's why it says, with God, all things will be possible. Okay, 
Right now, it is impossible that God can fellowship with you if you are a sinner. He can't do it. Your sins have separated you from your God so that he will not hear. But once you come to God, now it is possible. So it is possible. All things are possible with God. Okay? And even the book of Hebrews acknowledges that there is something that is impossible with God. It says that it is impossible for those who blah, blah, blah. Okay? And he uses the word it's not possible. Okay, so um, when we think of the impossibility of things with God, we're not talking about, uh, what we're talking about is things that God actually can do. God can't make two a three. He can't make yellow a blue, okay? Blue is blue, all right? If he changes it, then it's no longer blue, okay? God cannot violate his own nature. He cannot be unloving. He will always be loving. At the same time, he must be, you know, righteous. He must be, he must be just in how he judges, okay? It doesn't mean he's not loving. Sometimes the most loving thing in the world is to say, you have made your choice and you are going to go to the place that you have chosen because you have rejected me. To God, that is the most loving thing because to override him would be that he is an automaton and that God has disregarded his free will. So, there are things that God cannot logically do, okay? And that's, we're not talking about things that are impossible with God that he can do, that are not uh, a violation of his moral character or of his logical character, etc. Anyway, so there you go with that. But God can, I'll read that again so you see where I was going with that. Uh, peace with God comes first through receiving the work of Christ. Peace is restored. In that moment, a propitious or a happy, propitious simply means happy, relationship with God is restored and peace and harmony are realized. When we think of the Ark of the Covenant in the New Testament, it is called the what? Well, the mercy seat. The, specifically, the mercy seat of the Ark is called what? In the book of Hebrews and John uses this, uses a form of the same word, the propitiation. Okay, the blood is sprinkled on it, on the propitiation, okay, or actually on the propitiate, and propitiation is made. Okay, and what that means is it's the place of happiness or union once again. Okay, that's what propitiation means. So this is um, when that occurs, a propitious relationship is restored with God, happiness, the propitiation has been made, and peace and harmony are realized. When that occurs, God can then pour out his love on us in a way which was not previously possible. Like I said, you don't want to use the word impossible with God unless it is actually impossible. But if you have sin in your life, it is not possible for that to happen. It needs to be dealt with first. And that is why Christ came, was to deal with the sin. You know, all of the typology is found right in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle. Okay? When you are coming to the tabernacle, what's the first thing that you have to do? No, no, no. Sacrifice. I'm talking, you go to the temple and you want to have a restored relationship with God, you're not having anything until the sacrifice is made. The sacrifice and then everything else is made available. That's why the bronze altar is right there. When you walk in, that's the first thing you see, okay? It's because that has to be done first before anything else can happen with God. And that's a picture of Christ. Nothing else is going to happen with God and all of that other stuff, your sanctification, your washing, and you know all of that. None of that's going to happen until the sacrifice is dealt with first, okay? And then obviously you've got more sacrifices that are taken into the uh, holy place or the most holy place at certain times of the year, all picturing the work of Christ. But that sacrifice that was carried in there, the blood, happened where? 
right out at the altar. Okay, the bronze altar. And what is bronze? What's that a picture of? Judgment, exactly. Every single metal, every single color, everything about the, the tabernacle, everything pictures Jesus. Everything. Bronze is judgment. The judgment happens right here. And then there's blood, and you got the blood gets treated in different ways. Sometimes it's sprinkled. Sometimes it's scattered. Sometimes it's this and that. And the body of the animal. Certain animals are, uh, they're sacrificed, and then you get to eat some of it, and uh, the priest gets to eat some of it. And some of them, the animal is sacrificed, and most of it's burned up, but some of it is eaten by the priest. And then some of the sacrifices, all of the animal is burned up, okay? It all depends on what is happening in relation to the people and in relation to Christ. But every single aspect, if you've never gone through the Levitical sermons, the Leviticus sermons, what a treasure that book is. Because if you want to understand what's going on in Jesus Christ, I don't know how you can form the proper pictures without knowing the book of Leviticus. It's what a treasure. Um, and then the book of Hebrews you know, when you read it, it's kind of hard to really understand what's going on unless you know Leviticus, because everything in Hebrews is dealing with this Old Testament systems, because it's dealing with the people of Israel that missed the boat, or that some of them made it and some of them are still wondering, and it's dealing with the Hebrew people in a way that they can more fully understand the work of Christ, okay? Doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us, because every single thing that happened in that tabernacle, everything applies to us. It's just that Hebrews is written for them to get it. This is why we did these things. This is why Moses isn't as great as Jesus. This is why Aaron isn't as great as Jesus. We don't need that in the Gentile church except for our theology, but we don't need it for our knowledge because what happens when we're given the gospel? We either accept it or we reject it. To a Jew, there's going to be all that extra baggage of their culture and their heritage and their, their uh, you know, the law of Moses, and they need to know why Jesus is the fulfillment of that. That's the difference. But it all applies to us. Every single word of it applies to us in our walk. It just may not be necessary for us to know it. Yes? Go over that again. I've heard even preachers say, just speed through Leviticus. Oh, oh I, that would, I, that's the biggest mistake in the world. Yeah. That is the biggest mistake in the world. Every single sentence. Oh, if you want to understand Hebrews properly, you need to know, you definitely need to know Leviticus. You also need to know some of Numbers and etc. But you really have to know Leviticus because that's the whole, we're going to rabbit trail because we only got three verses and we got an hour and a half to fill. Here, um, we're going to go, here, listen to this. We'll just take you to just any chapter. We're going to... Chapter 9, here's what it says. I'm just pulling out a verse. Uh, verse 11, but Christ came as high priest, Leviticus, of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, Exodus and Leviticus, not made with hands, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, Exodus and Leviticus, right? Exodus, it's built. They built the tabernacle. This is what you make it out of. This is how many inches or cubits or whatever. Depends on the translation you're using. I'm not saying they used inches in the Hebrew society. Some, you know, versions will say it's two foot, 11 inches. They're just 
changing it so that we understand it. But it would have been in cubits or whatever. Okay, so um, uh, not with the blood of bulls and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. What is redemption? You got to go to Exodus and yeah, mostly Exodus to understand redemption, but elsewhere in the Old Testament. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean. Well, where is that? That's number six, the red heifer, right? Okay, so you need to know that. Uh, the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Well, what does that mean? If you don't know Numbers chapter six, the red heifer, you are going to have no idea at all what he is talking about. Okay, everybody got that? If you don't know those things, and if you haven't studied them in detail, then you probably have a faulty view of what is said because you listen to some pastor that just did a, you know, a 10-week run-through on the book of Leviticus, and he pulled out what he wanted, you will have no idea. He will have not done a thorough job of what you need to go through every single line, sometimes every clause, and sometimes spend five minutes on a single word to understand what's going on. And when I go back sometimes and I look at those sermons, I'm appalled at the things I've failed to come up with because it's such a rich book. I, you, you could never, you know, you'd be the rest of your life in the book of Leviticus if you took it so far. Well, this pertains to what Paul says here, and this I tried to do that as much as possible, but I always go back and I think, I missed that, <laughs> you know? And you, there's no point in going back and redoing them, but never, anybody that says, just go quickly through Leviticus or go quickly through Numbers, you'll never understand what the New Testament is saying. It'll never happen. We'll go on. Uh, the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, look, book of Leviticus, to God, what does that mean, without spot? Well, you may be able to infer it, and you may not, because without spot, tamim is the word that without blemish in Hebrew, there's all kinds of descriptions of what tamim means. It'll say this, bring this animal, tamim, you know, um, without blemish, okay, um, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Now what he's doing is he's saying, all these things that you are doing are dead works. Okay, well, what does that mean? It means that the law of Moses was only prefiguring Christ. And if you continue to do those things when Christ has come, you're missing the boat. But you're not going to understand what he's talking about unless you know what Leviticus and Numbers are saying. Most important foundational book, I'm telling you, absolutely. And for this reason, he is the mediator. What is a mediator? Right there in the Old Testament of this new covenant, referring to a new instead of the old, right? By means of death for the redemption of transgressions under the first covenant. Transgressions under the first covenant. Sins resulting from the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Meaning that you couldn't receive the promise of the eternal inheritance under the old covenant. But you need to know what the old covenant is saying in order to understand what he's saying there. We could go on. I mean, he's talking about scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself at the beginning, the initiation of the, the uh, covenant. All of these things, all of them have to be understood to understand the book of Hebrews. And if you don't know them, you will not have a, an appropriate understanding of Hebrews. And then you'll read Hebrews and you'll come to verse 6, 4, and you'll say, see, you can lose your salvation when he's not saying that at all. He is not saying that at all. You will not find a loss of salvation recorded in the book of Hebrews. It is not there. But people misunderstand what he's saying because they don't know what the Old Testament is saying, and they come to a completely faulty uh, uh, idea of what is going on. Speaking about eternal salvation, 
the sermon that I referenced that I did the, the graphics for today. Everything about that and the complicated nature of going from the singular to the plural to the singular to the plural. Moses is so precise with his words, and there's one reason why, one overarching reason why in those seven verses. It is to show that Israel will never be cast off as his people. Everything that Moses says is so clear once you see it laid out. But when you read the, the translations, they just keep saying they, 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 and it never says they. It says he, he, he. You'll never understand what is going on. But it is Old Testament telling you, you cannot lose your salvation. Israel is a template of what God is going to do in each individual human that comes to Jesus Christ. If you, if you believe that God would cast away Israel, then you will naturally believe that God will cast you away and you can lose your salvation. If you believe that, God will never cast away Israel, okay? It will never happen because he has covenanted with them. Their unfaithfulness does not negate his faithfulness, okay? Yeah, absolutely, and that's the same with us. When we come to him and we call out and we believe the gospel, our unfaithfulness after that does not negate his guarantee, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. If you believe that, I feel so bad for you. You do not know your theology. It sets you up for paranoia, but the thing is, is that, do most people that believe that you lose your salvation, do they think that like Israel has been cast away? Well, I, I think that a lot of their theology came from people that taught that, whether they know it or not. I don't know if they personally believe that, mm. but I, I would say that most of them have a misunderstanding of what they believe because of some pastor that did believe that. Mm. Because when you, you read through the Old Testament and then you come and you say, oh, the Jews are out and the church has replaced them, that immediately is suspect because you have read the Old Testament and you say to yourself, but God said, mm -hmm. and now you've got this dilemma going on in your head. Do I believe what that said or am I missing something? And the pastor is actually right because he's the guy in the pulpit and he's been studying his theology. He must know. I'm sorry. If that guy said that he is R-O-N-G, he is wrong. Okay. He did not do a proper job of understanding. You wait till we get to those verses. And like I said, at the beginning of it, I'll tell you, I, I say this in a couple upcoming sermons, on a scale of 1 to 10, this might be a 7 or an 8. It's a really hard sermon to grasp, but it's important. It's important because you are sitting in this church and you are a human being that's been saved by Christ and your relationship with him has direct bearing on what is said back here by Moses to the people of Israel. Direct bearing. And that's okay. this weekend. No, no, no. That's about eight weeks. Right, but but the one this weekend. Oh, this which, is which is the, the, with Luke goes back to which of the the books were the the um, the uh, divisions. Oh, uh, I don't really talk about it. I just mention it, right. but it goes back to Abijah, which is okay, which is uh, in which book? One Chronicles twenty four. Okay, I believe. Right. yeah. Okay, so, so it goes back to the, the Old Testament. The but what I do, yeah, what books. I do rather than talk about that directly is I say, if you want to know what this is saying, go back and watch that yeah, sermon. Yeah, right, right, that right. way, I don't have to go through another forty five minutes of explaining something to, um, you know, somebody posted on the uh, the uh, Rumble. Uh, I don't know who it was. I just, and I usually don't go and read the comments, but I got a notification. I read it and I was like, I need to correct him. Uh, it, you know, I mentioned during the midweek report that uh, uh, some people dismiss Christmas, 25 December, because they say it's pagan or something. I'm not going to talk about Christmas. And they have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. And I will take care of that in Sunday sermon. Yeah. But of course, he came back and he said, oh, you blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, then. It's not going to do any good at all unless you watch this Sunday sermon. If not, it's a one-sided argument, and you uh, are are going to just waste my time. So I said, just 
We'll see you Sunday morning, okay? Just watch the sermon and you will know if you are right or not, or you'll know if I am right or not, okay? Why do we, why do we have a Christmas? And we'll talk about that on the 26th because Christmas is over. So it's a good time to do that. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, uh, yes, our, uh, one more time. When that occurs, God can then pour out his love on us in a way which was not previously possible. And this will grow as our faith grows. Thus he says, and love with faith. His words are a petition to continually grow in the faith and thus receive the love which comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is the source. He's the source of these good blessings. Christ is the one through whom they came. There's no hint, no hint at all here or anywhere else of the subordination of Christ. Okay? There's no hint of subordination noted in Paul's words, but rather a logical process by which the love with faith is lavished upon us. Okay, now, in, uh, where is it that he says, uh, it's 1 Corinthians 15, where he says that, um, uh, I'll read it to you, so, because this will come to somebody's mind, and they'll say, yes, there's subordination. Okay, so I want to stop that right now by showing you there's not subordination. 1 Corinthians 15, then it says... Um, uh, is it 1 Corinthians 15? Um, come on, Burke, help me out. Where he says, well, I, where Christ, Christ, um, um, hang on a minute, where Christ is so that God may be all in all. Oh, then the Son uh, presents the kingdom to the Father, uh, and so that Christ may be all, God may be all in all, okay? Come on, where is that, Burke? I, I thought it was... Uh, yeah, I, I, I realized that once I opened it up and I said, that's not going to be the right one. Um, but some that verse is going to come to somebody's mind. It's funny, I'll get an email while we're having this uh, this class and somebody will remember the verse and they'll email me and when I get home, they say, it's this, like I can... I, I, I'm sorry, I can't read your email now, but I was there yelling it to you. <laughs> oh, so anyway, let me see if I can find that really quickly. Um, uh, uh, da, 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 we're going to go here. That's yes. And then 1528. Is that what we're looking for? It wasn't 1 Corinthians 15. Um, hang on. Yeah. Hang on. Ooh. Wait a minute. Yep. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. Okay. So it says here, um, so it was 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, speaking of Jesus, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted, meaning it doesn't apply to him, okay? Now, when all things are made subject to him, meaning Christ, then the Son himself will also be, I'm sorry, God. Now, when all things are made subject to him, God, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. Who is that speaking of? Speaking of Christ, but who is the Him? Is it God the Father? Sounds like it. No, it's God, the Godhead. No, in, in other words, the Godhead is not subordinate to Christ. Christ is a member of the Godhead. Right. So Christ, it says here, the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, meaning God. God. Christ is not above God, He is God. But there is a Godhead. There's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, uh, the Father is greater than I am, that is talking about in logical progression or procession of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
when we think of, okay, I'm going to give you an example. This is Abraham. This is Isaac. Which is greater? According to the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, which is greater? Abraham. Abraham. Okay, why? Father. Because he's the father. Is, are they both human beings? Do they both have two legs? Ten fingers, hopefully, etc.? Okay, they're both the same. But he is subordinate to him. He is greater because he is logically first. Okay? That's the idea here. It's not that God the Son is subordinate to God the Father. The Father is greater than me and I am less than him. It means that he is logically first. In time, you have past, present, and future. If God is the future, he is, we'll say the uh, time, just forget God. The future is logically first. Therefore, the present is subordinate to the future because the present doesn't happen until the future has presented itself in the present. And then from there, time goes on to past. So this is logically subordinate to this. It doesn't mean that it's any less than it. It's just subordinate in the progression. Future, present, past. They're the same thing. It's all time. There's one Godhead, okay? So you can't use those verses and say that Jesus is less than the Father, even though you can say that the Father is greater than I am if you're Jesus, because he is logically ahead in progression of the Son. But they are all one. That's why it says, you, then God will be all in all. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all, they're one, okay? The, the Trinity is just like almost incomprehensible. It is. There's very close things that will get you thinking in that direction, but you'll never grasp it no. here. But the thing is, is that when Jesus has risen and he's uh, been ascended and he's sitting at the right hand. Okay. So that, that's, a, that's, that's, that's exactly, that is showing. He, it's not subordinate in the sense that he is the right hand of power. God doesn't, this is where people make a mistake when they read that verse. They think, oh, Jesus is sitting at his right hand and therefore he is less than God. No, God does not have parts. Or sides. Yeah, and he doesn't have sides. There's no left and right to God. It is a position of power. That's all it is. The universe is here. Christ is in the position of power over the whole universe. That's what the right hand signifies. God doesn't have parts. Christ ascended to the position of power of God. God is everywhere at all times. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is man who is God. He is at the right hand, the position of power of all things. That's what that means. It's not a, there's not two things going on. There's one thing going on. God. But note, but note that here we are. We're debating between two positional things within the Godhead, and we have neatly ignored third it's like and everyone does that it's the spirit it's like you know well that but we're only using that as an example I because that. i just did i just did use the spirit you did i you did, did not I, ignore I that you, did. you didn't right. ignore it but it's just the, like the spirit seems, is yeah i know people least, people leave like, that out but it's the closest to you well no you because god is god god is well, everywhere at all times but, but my point is is that it's the spirit that seals you when you believe this is true but it's the spirit of christ which is the spirit of god so it's okay. one spirit. I, I, see, I just can't get my arm around that. No, and I, we can't. I that's it is the that's why we need to be careful. And I'll say this in Sunday sermon. We are always one misspoken word away from heresy. Always. All you have to do is just say one little word wrong when you're speaking about the nature of God. And all of a sudden, you are saying something that is actually heretical. So it's probably better not to speak about the nature of God at all than to go saying things that are not correct. You've got to be really, really careful. 
because all of a sudden you've said something that is not correct. And if somebody buys that for the rest of his life, he's going to be telling people, oh, yeah, God is like an egg. It's got a shell, it's got a yolk, and it's got a white. See, that's that has nothing to do with what God is like. Zero. Okay? Did you have something? John 10, 30. I, I and the Father are, are one. one. Absolutely. I and the Father are one. Okay? The fact that he says he's greater than me doesn't mean that he is less other than in progression. Okay? One God. There's only one God. How is God revealing himself as a Father, as a Son, as the Holy Spirit? All three are God. They're all God. Okay? One essence, three ways of expressing himself, I guess, but not modalist ways. A modalism would be where a guy is behind a screen, he walks out, and he's, you know, uh, Shakespeare. Then he walks back behind the screen, and he comes out, and he's now Jules Verne. Okay? And then he walks... That's not how God expresses himself. That, that's modalism. I am one thing at this time and one thing at another. That's not it. So we have to be careful about how we present God. Okay, so God the Father is the source of these good blessings. Christ is the one through whom they come. There's no hint of subordination noted in Paul's words, but rather a logical process by which the love with faith is lavished upon us. To grasp this, we could look at the love as a future anticipation. There's the source. When the moment comes that we exercise faith, which is in the present, the love is received. The present, then, would be the logical progression of time from future to here and now. There's no subordination of the present to the future. Rather, one follows logically after the other, co-equal and yet having a different aspect. Such is true with the nature of God towards us. That's how the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in relation to us. Okay? Life application. Let us be grateful to God for the perfect gift, which is Christ Jesus our Lord, and through whom come all of the many blessings which God sends upon his favored children, meaning us if we have called on Christ. Wonderful, wonderful. And we are at the last verse of the book of Ephesians. What an exciting moment. Here we go. Okay. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Okay, this one says it differently. Grace be with all those, but be is inserted. They just put that in for clarity. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Okay, all right. Got my air stuck in there. Okay, we have arrived. At the last of 155 verses of Marvel and Wonder. So this actually took 155 days to type this commentary because I did one verse a day for 155 days. Acts is a wee bit longer. It's, what was it, 1,100, 1,200? It's a lot. Acts is going to take a while to get through. We are, I'm typing Acts 4.3 this morning. Maybe it was Acts 4.4. So we're getting along, but we got 28 chapters, and some of them are a lot longer than others. So... We got a bit of work to do before we get through Acts, but what a book! Are you enjoying it, Burke? I are. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm, any any guesses on how long this took uh, to for us to get through here to this verse? No idea. Nine months and nineteen days. Nine months and nineteen days to get through the book of Ephesians. Okay. Well, we we thought I'd slow down for the next book because that. I'm sorry, we did that way too fast. Okay. The book of Ephesians has been a beautiful presentation of Christ and our expected conduct in him. 
Paul has opened up treasures of knowledge never before presented to the human mind. The mysteries, that's what a mystery is. We talked about that last week, have now been made known. And the prospects of eternity in the presence of the Lord, shaped as living stones in his building, have been revealed. These and many other wonderful truths have been unveiled to us. Now he closes out the epistle with words to those at Ephesus and to us that are intended to grant us a special blessing as we pursue Christ, ever going forward in the love and knowledge of him. Okay, sometimes when we're talking uh, in the Bible study, I get off on a rabbit trail. Don't do it very often. I try to stick right to the, I'm kidding, obviously. But um, as we're going through, sometimes I'll stop and talk. And then we have Mary that's down in Naples, okay? And she, after every Bible study, will take and she'll break them down. And she'll take out little pieces of the Bible studies so that people that don't want to listen to a whole Bible study, uh, she'll break them down. And then she will send them to a lady in the Czech Republic, Maya. And Maya will take those and she will turn them into what they call Bible Bites. I did not make up that name, okay? Um, but that uh, is what they are. They, they call them Bible Bites. And so if you subscribe to that channel that we have, then you can get these little quips of things. And yesterday, while I was working or watching one of them, because they always just come up on my TV. I don't know how that happens, but it just... And so when I turn on the TV, if there's one, I usually watch one. And they're from one to three minutes long, maybe. They're never long. But um, I just realized something yesterday. I never knew this. And this goes to Wade, who's out in Washington. So these three have been working on these together. Wade makes graphics for the Bible Bites. And I don't know how they did it, whether it was Wade or Maya, but right here, it shows up with a picture of Wade's graphic. And so I was looking at the graphic. I never really paid attention before. I'm just listening to what I said in the class. Oh, isn't that interesting? I didn't know that. Okay. Anyway, and so right here is a little Bible. And it's got a bite taken out of it. I never <laughs> said Bible bites. And then here it says the class that we're in. It'll say Ephesians Bible study. And in the middle, it'll say Ephesians, what, 522 through 23 or something, mm, whatever. Nice. And oh, I, I never noticed that. And I've watched a bunch of them. So anyway, um, just something that came to mind before we finish Ephesians. If you watch those Bible bites, you subscribe to the channel and then they'll come to you. And it'll just be little portions of the class that Mary thought would be interesting for people, that Maya had the time to turn into a video, and that Wade had time to make graphics for, there you go, a little Bible Something with a bite. tells me that, that graphic is permanent. So no, it comes and it goes. Yeah, right, it, it, but it, he's got those tags so that he can... I he guess, can but I don't know who does it. Does. All I know is he, he did does. the graphic, but I don't know if he sent it to her and she puts it in the video, or I'm, I have no idea. It's I never up. noticed that until yesterday. It's all... Out of an hour and a half Bible study, only one or two minutes are worth well, no, no, no. There's there's about ten of them. There's about fourteen of them that they just make them into little things. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, that that's Steve being a complete jerk over there. Okay. Um, so you want to guess how long Acts took to get through? Acts took through. Yeah, for us to do Acts. And that was a very poorly done study. How long? Two years, Two years nine, nine months, months six, six days. days. Unbelievable. Well, there you go. That was a long one. But uh, if we go through Acts again on a Bible study, which we should do because it's that important. It's going to take, we'll all be dead before we finish. It'll take forever. An hour and a half a week, it just won't work. Okay, so um, his building has been revealed. These and many other wonderful truths have been unveiled to us. Now he closes out the epistle with his words to those at Ephesus and thus to us. 
which are intended to grant us a special blessing as we pursue Christ ever going forward in the love and knowledge of him. So there you go. That's where I left off. And then he ends the epistle here as he ends all of his epistles by penning a request for grace. He always does that. What is a note of what is of note is that the epistle to the Hebrews also ends with grace, but none of the letters from James through Jude state it. However, the Bible finishes with the same note of grace, Revelation 22, verse 21. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's another clue that Paul probably wrote Hebrews. There's lots of them. People love to debate this. Uh, if they say it's not Paul, then they're probably wrong. Then I could show you all kinds of reasons why Paul is probably the author. Um, one of the most obvious is that Peter refers to Paul's letter to the Hebrew people. And yet there is no letter of Paul to the Hebrew people. We have no letter except Hebrews, which is unsigned. And that would be for a good reason, obviously, because the Hebrew people don't like Paul. Okay, They think he's a, a Gentile, and they have no idea that he was actually a Pharisee of their own uh, culture, and he was a Benjamite, a Jew of Jews, and a Hebrew of Hebrews, and all that kind of stuff. So um, uh, there are other real, real good clues as to why Hebrews was written by Paul. Uh, he was fully schooled in the Torah, the first five books of Moses, being a Pharisee. And whoever wrote Hebrews was fully schooled in the Torah. And then you also have E.W. Bullinger did a word study of words unique to Paul. And there we'll say that there are 150 words that Paul uses very often. And there's a symmetry that happens when you add the book of Hebrews into Paul's writings. It's, there'll be like 21 but then when you add in Hebrews, there's 22 of them. And when you take this word, there's 43, but now there's 44. They make patterns, numerical patterns that would not have existed without Hebrews. So there are all kinds of reasons why Paul is certainly the author of Hebrews, even though I can't say that because the Bible doesn't say it. But I would argue that that is the case. Okay, so um, Revelation 22, 21, the Bible ends on that. As Paul's letters are doctrine for the church age, the age of grace... It is appropriate that this expected blessing would be given. However, he qualifies the anticipated bestowal of grace by adding in the thought that it is to be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. That's where his bestowal of grace goes to. It doesn't just go to the whole world the way the Pope tries to, you know, everybody's going to get grace and you're all going to go to heaven and there's no condemnation in God. It doesn't work that way, okay? It's anyone uh, with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. That's who Paul wishes grace upon. Anyone can claim to be a follower of Christ, but not all truly are. There are countless people who are under the control of the power of the devil and who fill and infect churches all around the world. His qualifying words are meant to exclude them, and they are certainly given as a reminder to his readers that this is exactly why we are to put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, we just finished it, but that's where he speaks about that, and that is what we should be doing. We need to be prepared to defend ourselves against such perverse people, and we are also expected to go on the offensive, challenging them concerning the false teachings and cutting apart their heretical words. Paul, uh, before I go on, a heresy is not the same as bad doctrine. Bad doctrine is saying that you will be raptured mid-trip. 
Okay, it has nothing to do with a person losing his salvation. It's just something that the Bible does not teach. The Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, uh, Ron and I talked about that before church on Sunday. He got a this long, boring video that somebody did, and and this guy defended why a mid-trib rapture is correct. And out of all of his points, I think there were seven points. Six of them were pre-wrath, not so much. Uh, it's still mid-trib basically, but yes. it's pre-wrath. Okay. Anyway, out of the six points, I think there were five and a half points that you just throw right out the window. They have nothing to do with the rapture at all. I'll give you an example of one right now, and this is what I'm talking about. Bad doctrine and heresy. Bad doctrine is saying that Matthew 24, blah, 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 for the rapture. What's the problem with that? The Jews. It's, he's speaking to Israel under the law. Matthew 24 has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with the rapture. Zero. If you hear somebody speaking about the rapture and he introduces Matthew 24, that guy is already wrong. You don't need to listen to him anymore. He is complete. He has mixed dispensations. And I say this to people and they don't know what I'm talking about. Dispensations are what God is doing at a certain point in time in redemptive history. Jesus was speaking to Israel under the law. The law is the dispensation. He wasn't speaking at all to the Gentiles. And what he said had nothing to do with the Gentiles. Okay, wait. So, they say that no man knows the day and the hour is speaking of the rapture. How do you know that that's not correct? We already said that he's speaking to Israel under the law, but how do you know that that's not speaking about the rapture when the pastor standing in the pulpit or sitting in the pulpit or whatever he does is uh, uh, referring to that? How do you know that's not correct? I told you this on Sunday because the rapture was never mentioned Prior to prior Paul. to Paul, Paul mystery. revealed the mystery. The rapture was never even told to anybody on the face of the planet until Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. That was 30 plus years after Christ had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended. The rapture was never spoken about by Jesus, okay? So, if you hear somebody defending their view of the rapture, and this is what we're talking about in Ephesians right now, that is what we call bad doctrine. He has mixed dispensations, and he has come to an improper conclusion about the rapture. Paul introduces the rapture, he gives the timeline for the rapture, and he gives the details of the rapture, the I-T-D. Introduction, I-T, uh, timeline, and details. That is what Paul does. So if you go to anybody else to talk about the rapture, now afterward you can infer something from Revelation, but that's long after Paul had written it. Paul gives the rapture information. Okay, so I'll read that again so you know why I went off on that rabbit trail. Yes, we have time. We need to be prepared to defend ourselves against such perverse people, and we are also expected to go on the offensive, like we just did. All of you were offended by a pre-wrath rapture. We went on the offensive against their offense challenging them and concerning the false teachings and cutting apart their heretical words. And that's where I stopped. A heresy is something that will cause the next person down the line to never be saved. Okay? They have been taught something that is incorrect, and it is something that will keep them from being saved. When the Jehovah's Witnesses come knock on your door, and they say, we want to tell you about Jesus. He's this being that God created. And he was sent to die for the sins of the world. And if you accept this being that God created, you get to go to heaven or you get to be one of the 
uh, one of the 144,000 that goes to heaven or one of the schlubs that stays on earth forever walking around, okay? Wrong, okay? Uh, that is a heresy. They have introduced a heresy into the gospel because Jesus is holy man and holy God. He is uncreated, okay? And they now have a false Jesus. They have been presented a false gospel and they will not be saved, okay? That is a heresy. Bad doctrine, pre-wrath rapture, is bad doctrine. It's not going to keep you from being saved, but it sure will keep you from having your joy as you anticipate the coming of Christ, okay? Whereas a heresy is something that will actually harm, harm people's salvation, okay? So, heretical words. Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. Oh, you add something. What was it? Matthew 24, 25 is tribulation. Tribulation period. That's right. It has nothing to do. Thank you. Matthew 24, the entire thing has absolutely nothing to do with the church age. The rapture will happen, and then all of that stuff will happen afterwards. You've also said in the past that, that heresies are always centered around uh, changing who Jesus is. Not always, but 99% of it is. There will be something false about Jesus in a heresy. Almost always. I don't know if I would say always. I'd have to think about that. But, you know, if you were to say, well, the Trinity isn't true, which the Job's Witnesses say, that's centered around Jesus because right. of the Trinity. So it may be, and I may have said that, and that means I thought it through, but now I'm, I don't want to be dogmatic until I think it through again. Give you a chance to wrestle yeah, with Yeah, I'll wrestle with that again tonight because I'm not going to do it right now. I just want to make sure if I say that, that it's correct. Um, okay, so um, uh, Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, and thus Christ's spokesperson to us would have us do no less. We are to make sure that we stand against heresy. We are to stand against bad teaching. We are to call it out publicly, okay? We don't do the peevish thing and write the guy a letter. If he's done something wrong, we call it out. We say, this person is wrong. We need to make sure that the people that are being in infected by him are made aware of that. If I send him a letter and he doesn't care and he throws my letter away, I've done nothing. I've solved nothing. My job is to make sure that you are properly trained. Your job is to make sure that the people you talk to are properly trained, okay? That is our job. If we know somebody is saying something wrong, like the Pope over in the Vatican, okay, we need to call him out on it. No, write him a letter. The guy couldn't care what you think. He couldn't care this much what you think because he doesn't care what the Bible says. He didn't care. So it would do no good for me to go writing him a letter. Zero, okay? He's a heretic. Okay, anyway, um... Uh, those who are in who are insincere in their hearts toward Christ are not included in the grace He bestows upon those who love Him in sincerity. Okay, and finally He closes with, "Amen." The word signifies truth, or so be it, and may it be so in our lives as we seek after and even pursue our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we're to do. We are to pursue Him. We're to actively think about him, think on his word, meditate on it, talk to people about it. If you don't know, ask somebody and then check with somebody else as well, because the guy you ask may be wrong, okay? And unless it's convincing, it's directly from the Bible and it is in its proper context, because you can pull almost anything out of the Bible and make it say what you want it to. So uh, oh God, we're going to be done right on time. Yeah. Life application. As you go back and reread the epistle to the Ephesians in the future, remember that the words which are written are directed to you personally as well. Hold fast to the promises, be careful to ponder and apply the exhortations, and be pleased to share the wonderful marvels of this word 
with others to the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. My worth is not in what I do, but what he does. My worth is not in how much I give, but how much I have him in my life. My worth is not in how I love, but how he loves me. My worth is not in my words, but in his word. He's given me. My worth is not in who I am, but who he is. All my worth is in Jesus Christ and in the cross he bore for me. And I'm free to praise his name, to love him so, to learn his way. And I can do this with all my heart of my free will, not as a tithe. That's Isabella Bednara. Thank you, Isabella, for your wonderful words. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ephesians. It's a wonderful book. We pray that uh, people will want to study it more, to think on it, and to contemplate its treasures all the days of their lives. With this failing Bible study that we've put forth, may they build upon it and find even greater treasures and more riches and uh, more appropriate words to express what Paul is trying to tell us. And Lord, we certainly thank you for the opportunity, if it's your will, that we start the book of Philippians next week. If it doesn't happen, that means that we're either not here because of the rapture or we're not here because of some other thing that's kept us from meeting together. But Lord, we thank you that uh, we have been able to be in this word, to cherish this word, and to be a part of what this word tells us and how it relates to our own lives personally. Thank you for this precious word. And Lord, we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, we need to wish everybody online a Merry Christmas. So I'm going to go over here and make sure you let them know that you're thinking of them right now. Okay, here we go. I'm going to go break. <laughs>